1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Sonia Foss and Dr. William Waters about their book, Destination Dissertation, A Traveler's Guide to a Done Dissertation. Sonia and William, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I wonder if you both could begin by telling us a bit about yourselves. Uh, let's start with Sonia.
2: Uh, sure. Um, I have a PhD in communication from Northwestern University. Um, my undergraduate degree was in Romance Languages and my master's degree in speech communication. Um, my interests are in, and research interests in teaching are in contemporary perspectives on rhetoric, uh, rhetorical criticism, which is simply how do you analyze messages. Uh, feminist perspectives on communication, and visual communication. Um, I've taught at a lot of uh, schools over my career. and retired now, uh, but including Virginia Tech and Norfolk State University, Ohio State University, University of Oregon, and several more. Um, I guess what started me on this uh, dissertation project was that I wrote my dissertation the second year of my coursework, at Northwestern. I just had a little free time. And so I thought, well, I might as well get started on my dissertation. So I finished my PhD in two years. Um, I was also commuting um, back and forth. Uh, it took like an hour and a half on the train each way. So I had a lot of time to read and work on the train. So when I started advising doctoral students, that experience probably biased me in some odd ways and, and probably isn't very useful for your, your, uh, your uh, audience to hear. But then I discovered that students didn't know a lot about things, and we'll probably talk about this um, more later about um, why we wrote the book. But then eventually I started scholars retreat for people to come in the summer for a week or two just to work on their dissertations. Uh, so that's probably enough about me for now.
0: Thank you. William, can you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Sure, sure. I I have a little bit of a a different background than some people, I think. Um, I I started in science and um, uh, um, then moved over to poetry. I I consider myself primarily a poet, uh, even though I'm an associate professor of English here. Uh, I took off a number of years, uh, four and a half years, to be a monk in a Buddhist monastery and and practiced uh, um, a kind of Zen meditation there, a Chan meditation really. Uh, Then um, I returned to the university, and my primary interest is in how language constructs the world that we we interact with. So um, uh, the way we think about things and the way we talk about things create our reality. If we change the language we use, uh, we can actually create a different reality around us. Uh, And that, that helped very much when I met Sonia and we started working together on this project.
0: Thank you. And uh, what um, institution are you at
1: right oh, currently? I'm at the University of Houston downtown, uh, and I have a PhD in uh, rhetoric and composition.
0: Okay, wonderful. Thank I guess you.
2: I I, guess I forgot to say what my last institution was, which was the University of Colorado,
1: Denver. Okay.
0: All right. Thank you both so much. So um, what inspired you to write this book?
1: That's actually a, a, an interesting question because um, Sonia and I were both doing uh, um, workshops and for a long time we actually talked ourselves out of writing the book. Um, um, the way I remember it is is we thought this had already been done, that people had really... Uh, covered this, and and there were a number of books about this. Um, But every time we did a workshop, every time we worked with people, uh, their response would be something like, wow, why has no one ever told us about this? Uh, This is really liberating. This is really helpful. um, Why didn't we learn this? And so eventually, I I think um, that really encouraged Sonia and I to put it together uh, in, in a published form.
2: Yes, and one thing we discovered, too, in scholars' retreats and other workshops was some faculty members deliberately try to make the process mysterious. And so they don't tell their students things that they need to know, real basic processes that would help them move forward quickly. And so we thought our book could do that. Uh, And we also, as William alluded to, we looked at a whole bunch of other books and, and we were amazed at how unhelpful many of them were. Like they they say things like, well, how do you do research in a library or how do you set up your workspace? Well, those are not the issues that are holding doctoral students back. Yes. uh,
1: One of them actually had a a part of a chapter on picking out a waste paper basket.
2: (laughs) Yes. Wow. (laughs) 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 Not the reason that people get stuck. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: we're we're going to dive into all of that. Um, so as the title of the book suggests, you use a travel metaphor to represent the process of writing a dissertation. How did you come to that decision, and why is that metaphor useful for this topic?
2: One of the things we do a lot in our workshops and our seminars is we encourage students not necessarily to use it at the end but to conceptualize their Data and their analysis using some kind of metaphor because that just tends to trigger more ideas. And so we were thinking when we were getting ready to write this book, well, is there a metaphor that would work for us? And we played around with a lot of different ones. Uh, I think one of the ones we stuck with for a while was a scavenger hunt.
1: Right. Uh, yes.
2: But then we decided, no, that doesn't work because someone else is guiding the process. You know, they've set up the notes mm-hmm. and the prizes, uh, and so we and we wanted the person writing a dissertation to be in control. Um, so I guess we just, we, and maybe you can add to this, William, but I guess one of the things that was motivating us, we wanted to make the dissertation seem doable and enjoyable and not have all those metaphors that people tend to think of it. So we wanted to replace those metaphors like running a marathon or learning a Martian language that people often say a dissertation is like. So we wanted a metaphor that made it seem Doable
1: to people. Many, many of the people we were working with, the biggest thing that was holding them back was a kind of uh, economy of pain that they had learned um, uh, to equate with s- um, so many pages of writing. You know, um, I'm going to write 10 pages and it's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be this difficult to do it. And so removing the difficulty was really pretty important to that. Um, that uh, when things go wrong, when, when we're traveling, when things go wrong, we simply make another plan. You don't just stop or, or stay in Italy for the rest of your life. Um, you just make a new plan. And so we really wanted to talk about how people were agentic and, uh, and in control, as Sonia said. Um, but also um, uh, um, that they're going through foreign territory, seeing it for the first time, and being excited about the things that they see there, coming back and reporting uh, to other people, we we had imagined the defense. Like um, I, I think people may not remember this, but people going on trips and bringing back their slides, their pictures mm. of their trip, and giving a presentation to other people about what they saw. We had imagined the dissertation really acting like that. Mm.
0: Thank you. I, I think it's a wonderful metaphor and and really does work throughout the book. Um, and so you do state, and, and Sonia kind of alluded to this, you state that the chief characteristic of a good dissertation is doability. And one way to design a dissertation that is doable is by understanding its function properly. Can you talk more about the function of a dissertation and how it is often misunderstood?
1: Yeah, yes. that, that's a great okay. question, actually. Um, uh, I think that, uh, to jump in here, I think that that's one of the things that slows people down the most is that they misunderstand the function. Uh, many, many people that we work with think of the dissertation as the best work that they're ever going to do. Uh, they think that the dissertation is what's going to get them a job and that it's their, their life's work, as opposed to um, the, the real function is to show Ah, uh, to show that you're capable of doing research in a short amount of time, so that you can continue to practice. We often tell
2: students who thought that this had to be the best work of their career, if this is the best work of your career, you're going to have a very short career because it's kind of over now.
1: <laughs> I think I was surprised when I uh, back when I first started going on the on the job market. I personally was very, very surprised that nobody really cared about my dissertation. They they might ask a question about it, but nobody really read it. Um, uh, Nobody looked at, well, what is the key idea there? Um, And I think that that surprises a lot of people that um, there's going to be many other things that people are interested in.
0: Mm. Before we get too far into the conversation, I I do want to mention here that although the book focuses on dissertation writing, the steps and processes you outline are applicable to more than just, you know, doctoral students at the dissertation stage. Um, You suggest this book would be useful for anyone doing academic writing. Can you talk more about that?
2: Yes. Um, Really, all of the processes that we outline, we use when we're coaching individuals on publications. Uh, because they're they're the basic steps of any research project. I mean, certainly there's some things you do in a dissertation that you don't do in an article. You don't have an extensive lit review, for example. But the process of aligning all the key pieces of the project, how do you code data, how do you come up with an interesting uh, conceptual schema to summarize the data, how do you write and edit, all of those things are exactly the same.
1: Yes, uh, I would agree completely.
0: So, yeah. So I just wanted, and one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, highlight this book on the channel is because writing is such a pivotal um, topic for, you know, for the, for folks in the academy at, at all levels. And, um, and this is a a wonderful resource for, for doc students, no doubt, but it also can be very um, useful for anyone writing up academic, academic, uh, doing academic writing and writing up uh, research and scholarship. So um i just wanted to note that so so listeners are are aware of that um sure. your book Dana, focuses,
1: oh go ahead. sorry you know when when we do workshops um uh, primarily on professional uh development writing so people who are already uh faculty members they're working on tenure uh we use exactly these ideas with them as well
0: yes yes and 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 it's um and again there are certain pieces throughout the book that are obviously very dissertation focused, but as you said, it's, um, it all translates, it all translates. Um, and and so I, I just want listeners to be aware of that. So they're not thinking, well, I've already done my dissertation, but no, there's, there's quite a bit here that is useful. Um, most of it, honestly, for any stage of, of academic writing. Um, and you, so I want to talk about the processes. Your book focuses on processes. Um, and, um, and, and you take large, complex processes and you break them down into manageable, chunkable, discrete steps. Can you tell us more about this approach and its effectiveness?
1: That's a key idea that, that we began with. Um, uh, and it's a key idea that, that really resonates with people. Um, uh, one thing that I would say very often when I talk to people about uh, being stuck with writing, they talk about maybe writing chapter one or writing, uh, yeah, writing chapter one, and they spend Uh, sometimes maybe months walking around saying, I'm writing chapter one, I'm writing chapter one. And what ends up happening because they spend so much time thinking of that as just one thing, they never really get ahead. Uh, You know, the the day later, they're still writing chapter one. A week later, they're still writing chapter one. Um, Breaking it down into smaller parts means that you're collecting successes. So instead of saying, I'm writing chapter one, um, you know, even if you turned it into I'm um, outlining uh, the introduction of chapter one or I'm working on the parts of the uh, research problem, the three parts of the research problem. It means that small amounts of time are going to produce successes and those successes are going to uh, accumulate to give you more motivation as you move forwards. Mm-hmm.
2: Sonia, did you have anything? I was just working with a woman individually. Um, she's checking in with me every week week and setting a plan for the week, and then she checks in the next week and tells me if she uh, did what she wanted to do. And when we first started, she was doing exactly that. Well, this week, I'm going to do the lit review for this article. Well, what exactly does that mean? You know, how will she know when she's making progress? So I'm insisting that she really put it in really small, discrete steps um, so that we know exactly what it is she's supposed to accomplish that week not just this vague, right, to let review.
0: Hmm. So um, our listeners probably know this already. I think maybe I mention this every episode, <laughs> but I am a big process person. And um, and I usually will name at the beginning of an episode if I'm interviewing someone I know. Um, and while I do not know you all, um, I will name um, that I did use this book um, when I wrote my own dissertation. It was gifted to me Um by a department that I was departing as I was uh, um, transitioning. And uh, so I, I didn't even come upon it myself. Um, someone else gave it to me and I found it very, very helpful. And so from experience, um, I knew that this book really uh, was effective. Um, and so when I was thinking about resources for our listeners and, and uh, writing resources that I wanted to highlight, this definitely came to mind. Um, so as I said, I am a big process person and one of my mantras in life and I can apply it to anything, is trust the process. Um, and I do believe that a lot of success is, is figuring out what your process is. Um, and so I'm saying this to say that even as someone who excels at breaking down complex processes like I do, I found your book very helpful when I was writing my dissertation um, because it's a great resource for people who may already be able to do this. Um, because for me, I found that, you know, you still get stuck sometimes along the way. Um, But it was sort of like having a partner right there in the pages of the book to guide me in the same manner that I was used to doing things, you know, being able to set small step goals for myself. So today I'm going to, you know, I'm going to document five articles or eight articles or whatever that process looks like. So, um, So it's useful for folks who already, I think, can do that naturally because inevitably you're going to get stuck. But then you have this this book right here to kind of assist you and to help move you forward. Sometimes just rereading some of the suggestions that you have at different stages could be helpful. And then for those folks who are not skilled in breaking down complex processes, this is a lifeline for sure. Um, have you seen that, that it's for both folks who, you know, I think maybe can naturally or just, you know, they're, they're accustomed to being able to break down large uh, processes and then those who obviously maybe are, are not used to doing that. So it helps.
2: Yes, I think that's certainly true. I think for us, the people who uh, come to our scholars retreats or come to our workshops, are probably ones who don't know how to do processes very well. So that's why they've come to us. Yes. <laughs> but yes. Certainly if you know how to do that already you're way ahead. Yes. I think
1: I think some people come with the, um, with the ability to break down a process but they haven't had any kind of exposure to what dissertations look like and again going back to your earlier question about the function of a dissertation. They have a very different idea of how it's functioning. So one thing that I would say the book does really very well for those people are the examples that are, are included. So when someone is able to see, we'll, we'll talk through maybe uh, what coding of a uh, literature looks like and sorting it, and then we give a number of examples for that. I think those examples are really, really very helpful for the people who um, uh, can break down a process, but just haven't been exposed to, uh, a, a variety of different dissertations.
0: Mm. Well, and I, I, I to circle back on that. I, I would agree. And I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of it as a mentor text. Um, and, and what we try to do with this channel is, is we kind of conceive of it in some ways as sort of a mentor channel to help, you know, kind of folks, have that mentoring that maybe they either didn't have or in certain areas that, that there might be gaps in their mentoring. And as you said, and and this came up earlier in the conversation, you know, if you're writing a dissertation, it's your first time writing a dissertation likely. And so you've not gone through that process before, um, as, um, in previous conversations I've had on, on the channel here about mentoring, you know, p- the purpose of a mentor is to help guide you through things that you maybe have not experienced before. So you won't know, you know, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what questions to always ask. And so, um, you know, to your point, William, even though, you know, I am, you know, naturally it's, it's, I am, you know, good at breaking down complex processes. That was the first time I had done a dissertation. Right. So um, those yeah. steps were new. Um, and as um, Sonia mentioned earlier as well, um, sometimes, or a lot of times those, uh, the, the parts and the pieces and what's expected is not explicitly laid out. Um, you know, a lot of doc programs just kind of think, you know how to do it, or you'll figure out how to do it, or you'll find some resource to help you do it. Um, hence, you know, your book is very helpful in that. So, um, to kind of, you know, guide someone through the first time doing something. Um, And the examples, yes, the the book is rife with examples, and that's very helpful, Um, and especially as a mentor text to kind of give you um, uh, samples of of what it could look like. Um,
2: And I think there's another piece of this too. Not only has the student not ever written a dissertation, but often their advisor has only had experience with his or her dissertation. Exactly. And so they don't know they're not very helpful in advising. All they can do is follow their own model, which may not work at all for the student's project. Hmm.
1: It, it was not, uh, it's not at all unusual that we're working with someone and they have a very odd section um, in terms of the dissertation that they're writing. And we'll ask them, well, why, why did you put this section in here? And they'll say, well, my advisor had that section in, in her. Uh, her dissertation. And so um, uh, this book has also been very helpful for advisors. Uh, We've heard from a a number of advisors that say, oh, this is great. This gives me uh, a kind of way to take the experience that I've had in my own dissertation and widen it to other examples, other kinds of dissertations.
0: Um, so one of the main ideas that comes up throughout the book is not writing before you're ready because it will actually delay you in the end. So for a lot of folks that may seem counterintuitive. So would you unpack that a little bit more for us?
1: Why don't you take this, William? Sure. Sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So the, the analogy that we usually use is that, um, uh, the time you put into writing, you want that time to move you forwards. If you write a, um, if you write a wonderful um, two pages with clean, clean prose, and and you've really labored over that for for hours, uh, but that work isn't going to be used in your final product, you've lost that time. Uh, so the hours that you've put into that just get cut and dropped on the floor. Um, so what's really a key idea is to know how all the how to know what parts need to be there and how they're going to fit together to make a bigger argument when you know those things then you can write each of the smaller pieces more efficiently and effectively even writing fast you know not necessarily polishing text but knowing the uh, moves the the writing moves that have to take Part in each of those sections. So for example, concretely, if you're writing the research problem, um, uh, if you just start writing about all the things you know about let's say um, uh, depression in, uh, in a particular population, um, what's gonna happen is you're gonna write down a bunch of stuff that simply won't uh, be included in your work. Whereas if you look closely at what has the literature told us on, on one side, uh, that disagrees with something that the literature told us on another side, that disagreement, the the contrast between those two ideas becomes a research problem that I, as a researcher, can ask a question about, create a method to answer, and then fill in the, the data that will do that.
2: And I can give a um, kind of horrifying example. Uh, we had a student who came to scholars retreat once who had written about 500 pages but she didn't have a research question she didn't really know what she was trying to answer and boy what a mess to try to put this together into some kind of dissertation that made sense Mm. Mm.
1: partly a lot of writing yes uh, partly there's a key concept uh sonia and i also wrote a chapter uh a chapter of uh, a book about um uh, students moving to scholars uh and and what it means uh in a writerly way to be a student versus a, a scholar. Uh, students have been taught, encouraged, to do a kind of dump, right? Just to tell everything they know about a topic. Um, and they've been taught that because that's really the, the method of evaluation uh, that they've gone through in, in school. But the change to being a scholar is not telling someone everything you know about something, but telling them key pieces that will give them new knowledge and so there's a real, a real um, uh, distinct difference uh, that needs to be made uh, intellectually before the writing becomes efficient.
0: Mm. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I had that as something to explore. That idea of because that is also something that comes up throughout the book. But that idea of being a scholar and so your your distinction of being a student versus a scholar, um, and I think there's you know a bit of a transition almost that needs to happen. Um, as you said, I think, before you really can get to that place of, of writing the dissertation and of seeing yourself as a scholar. Um, so I want to linger here for just a minute. Can you um, talk more about how you frame being a scholar?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, f- really, the scholar is taking uh, knowledge of the discipline, taking knowledge of discipline, and uh, uh, making a question about that knowledge. Um, what doesn't make sense to me? Uh, what what sticks out as odd and what can I do with it, not, uh, not as a, um, a proselytizing, not as just um, um, editorializing something, but what can I do with it to hand over to other scholars um, a insight that they can use to continue a discussion. Um, and those are really very different things than what we see. Uh, a lot of times people will come in and say, this is what I want to talk about. Um, And so that means that they don't have a question. They don't have a method of answering that question. Um, And so then what they're really doing is just saying um, uh, what their belief is on a topic. Uh, That's more of an editorial. Being a scholar is finding something in the literature, something in the discipline itself, that doesn't quite make sense, um, that raises some kind of other question, asking that question, and then coming up with some kind of systematic method for collecting data that will answer that.
2: Mm. I I think another distinction between the student and the scholar, often the student, if they end up coding data or doing some kind of research project, they think it's enough to just end with, oh, well, here I have these themes. But I think a scholar takes one more step and tries to put them together in some kind of theory, a loose theory, perhaps, but some kind of theory that's more abstract that other scholars can come along and use. So so it's really, again, making that transition to I have to do something with my findings besides just say I've got five themes,
1: for example. Exactly. We often see this most most prominently in the literature review when we work with people. uh, Early versions of the literature review uh, will look like they're comprehensive exams um, and, and they will use uh, the article itself, the author and the article itself, um, as the information. So they're just simply saying so-and-so says this. Um, once they've moved to a scholar, what they're doing is really using uh, um, features from the article they're taking features from the article. They're putting together and the literature review itself makes an argument while it presents the literature.
0: Mm. And I know I know I know throughout the book um, when when this idea comes up um, in different places, I, th- I think it almost bookends the book. You, you talk about it in the very beginning um, and then also again at the end. Um, but it's that idea of, of, of that a scholar is joining that what you are doing is joining a conversation. Um, and you're co- contributing to a conversation, um, and you know, and to do that, you kind of have to synthesize, you know, what's out there along with what you're producing, and and that's much more than just summarizing what everybody else has already
2: said. Uh,
1: I, I think we would also say that a scholar is more often surprised by what they're writing than than a student. Um, scholars, when they apply, uh, um, a method to a research question, the answer is really quite surprising. Whoa, I never thought I would, I never thought I'd see that. Um, uh, they come up with a very interesting contribution.
0: So um, we've, we've, we've hit on this a little bit, and I, I, I want to um, talk about this. Um, you state that the research question is the most important part of the dissertation, and it takes the most effort and care to develop. So, can you talk more about that? I know you alluded to the idea of you know writing without without a a question is um, can be unfruitful to say the least. So, so can we talk a little bit about the importance of the research question?
2: Yeah, it's really the thing that guides the entire project, and so we always have students at the beginning come up with a research question and then make sure that everything else is aligning with that. So, what literature are you going to look at has to come out of that question, like what kind of method are you going to use? That needs to be one that can answer that question. So it really provides a reason for doing the study, why you're engaging in the research. Um, and we have a, a lot in the book about the criteria that your research question should meet. Because a lot of people, oddly enough, coming from grad school, <laughs> have had no experience coming up with a good research question.
1: Exactly. Um, and actually, the research question um, uh, doesn't come from the writer; it comes from th- their understanding of their discipline. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, even that, the, the research question is: What is grounding the dissertation or, or the article in the in the discipline, and is going to make it publishable? Is going to make it meaningful for other scholars as well?
0: Mm. So the. The research question guides the whole dissertation, and for this reason, um, as I said, I used your book. I I taped it to my to to my screen. I had I had my research question on a Post-it note, and I kept it um, on my computer. Uh, and this was especially important for me when I was digging into the literature. When I would keep going back to the literature, because I can get distracted easily. I find lots of ideas interesting, <laughs> and so I could kind yeah. of go on a trail off these things. And I would always I had so I had that question there to, to keep moving me back in the right direction of, is this, is this tangent I'm going, I'm going to help me answer my question. Um, and so to kind of build off your metaphor, I love, um, I love metaphors as well. Um, I sort of used it as a compass of sorts, um, to kind of keep me moving in the right direction and not going off track. Yeah. Um, are there other ways that you've seen uh, scholars and students,
2: you know, kind of keep themselves focused? Well, one of the things we talk about, and you alluded to this, uh, at the end of the book, we talk about enacting the scholar role and ways that students uh, kind of get off that scholar role and construct some other roles that are not useful for them. Um, so we talk about the housekeeper role, for example, uh, where people decide – in order, before I can write, before I can work on my dissertation, I have to have my environment perfect. And so then they spend all their time housekeeping or you know, arranging the books on their shelves or you know, cleaning up or making the fringe on their carpet all be even. Um, so yes, people get in, the, in their own ways a lot.
1: I think one of the one of the maybe more useful tools. Um, Uh, A a very useful tool in there that keeps people uh, on track is the alignment worksheet. Um, uh, It's a very simple uh, worksheet that um, uh, asks the writer to identify uh, what the research problem is, what the research question is, what the categories of the literature review are, um, uh, what the data is, how it will be collected, how it will be analyzed, and, um, and the significance of the answer of the research question. Um, for such a simple, for such a simple worksheet, I, I think that that, um, like taping the research question to the wall, uh, that worksheet helps people uh, stay away from tangents and, and really be able to say, um, can I answer this research question with this set of data? Will this particular kind of analysis give me an answer to the question. Um, we've seen in the past many times people have uh, research questions and data that don't align with each other, and so when it comes time to answer the research question, they have a research question, but then they have no answer because the data either can't be analyzed or, or is really telling us about re, uh, a completely different topic.
0: Mm. So. Um, the The worksheet that you're referring to, uh, William, is um, the pre-proposal, is what you call it in the book. And I definitely wanted to spend some time on this. Um, and and using the the travel metaphor, I believe you all refer to it as the itinerary for the trip is the pre-proposal. And you spend a whole chapter outlining the components of the pre-proposal, um, which you you mentioned here, from the research question to the, um, you know, the literature review to the um, you know, the, the uh, methods and the write-up, you even have students outline the chapters. Um, and, you, and you do say very clearly that if readers take nothing else from this book, that they should do this, they should do uh, the pre-proposal. So, um, and I think you've already kind of spoken to this. So if you want to add to it, I was going to ask, you know, for you to kind of elaborate a little bit more on on the pre-proposal and then why it's so important.
2: I guess for for us, we've seen so many students or stuck, and when we get them to do this, it's very obvious that there's one thing that's off, and that, that that thing being off is often what's keeping them stuck. And so we've just seen time and time again that unless the project is conceptualized so that it's consistent, the student is inevitably going to end up not being able to finish. Mm. Um,
0: you also, I think one of the things that was really um you know, striking in that chapter is that you talk about this almost, you know, writing this out and then, and then it's sort of like an agreement between you and your advisor. And you talk about proposing it to your advisor and sending it to your advisor. And it's sort of this, um, I, so I have, um, I called it a roadmap and I don't know if maybe you called it a roadmap in the first edition. I use the first edition. Um, so, um, you know, I, that it, that it serves as this kind of guide, this roadmap for the student as well as the advisor. And, and can you speak to that as? As well,
1: sure. I mean, it really does work as a roadmap. Very often, um, in in the cases that we've seen, a dissertation is going to be produced over um, a number of years, even though it doesn't need to be. Uh, it's going to be produced over a number of years, and maybe someone is meeting with an advisor uh, uh, four four times, um, maybe more frequently, uh, maybe every month or so. But a lot happens between one meeting and another meeting, um, and the um, topic can easily change. Um, uh, the, the discussion about it can easily alter. If you don't keep something written down, and if you don't, if both people aren't reminded about what you're trying to do, the conversations that you're having two months after you started a project can actually uh, create an entirely different project. And then the work that you've done has to be started over again.
2: Hmm. I think people tend to forget that advisors are very busy people and they're teaching and they're doing their own research and they may be directing a lot of dissertations. So it's going to be hard for them to remember the specifics of one student's project. And so that's why we recommend, like, whenever you go to a meeting with your advisor or have email uh, contact with your advisor, that you send this pre-proposal along just to remind them this is what we're doing. And we're not going to deviate from this unless there's a really, really good reason to
1: do that. Hmm. I'll give a specific example. I was meeting with one of my students uh, actually last weekend, and uh, we hadn't met for a while because of COVID and and some other things. And uh, we were working on outlining a specific criteria for a rubric and uh, and really spent a long time, maybe 30 minutes, uh, working on some criteria. But then... We, we stopped and said, wait a minute, what, what's the research question again? What is it that we're really trying to answer with this rubric? What are we trying to measure? And when we went back to, their, to the research question and, and discussed what we were trying to measure, we realized that that 30 minutes was we'd really spent going off on a tangent. We'd find interesting things to measure and interesting ways to measure them, but they weren't relevant. And so uh, we were able to let that go and get back on track.
0: Mm. Well, um, so as I said, you know, I did use your book. So I thought, well, let me go back and, um, and I know that I did the roadmap. Um, and I, so I dug it out. I went back into my file, my computer, and I was like, I wonder, I wonder what that, I haven't looked at that. And it's probably, and it was, it's been about, I think it was about a decade ago that I wrote it. And I found that I didn't write just one. I wrote four. So I had four (laughs) single page roadmaps. And, and I remember, and so then it jogged my memory. I was like, oh yes. Um, and I did that because I remember meeting with my advisor and she just like, she's very, you know, has lots of ideas and she threw lots of different ideas out. And I had already had a pretty clear idea of what I was going to do. I mean, I went into the program with a pretty clear idea of my topic and, but then I remember meeting with her and, um, she, there was a bunch of other ideas that came out. And so what I did was I explored those ideas in different versions of the pre-proposal. So how would I do this project? And I wrote four different versions and ultimately, you know, I decided and we agreed on the one that I originally had. But um, that actually, you know, that kind of did delay me a little bit. Um, and, and another one of my committee members said, Why is this taking you so long? I was like, Well, because I, I thought that I, you know, needed to explore these other options. But the pre, but doing four different roadmaps did help me envision what the project would look like in four different iterations. And I could have done any of those. They would have been good projects. It's just, which one did I want to do? Which one was I interested in doing? Which way was I going to approach it? Um, And so have you seen other ways that people have adapted the pre-proposal in the dissertation process? I mean, that was kind of like a planning tool for me that really helped. Like I got all that sort of, you know, options out of the way on the front end. And then once I decided it, then we went forward and it just went smoothly.
2: But Dana, well, I, if... I like that idea, Dana, because it is actually a good strategy if you have an advisor who's just always throwing out a bunch of ideas. <laughs> you know, Then you, you capture them, you put them in your in a study in this pre-proposal so that both of you can look at them together. Uh, I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's a great strategy uh, if you've got that kind of an advisor. Uh, I don't know. Have we heard of any other uh, interesting uses like that, William? Uh,
1: but... Before I answer that, I'd, I'd like to go back and just make a comment. Uh, Dana, you, you mentioned that your advi- uh, second advisor thought it was slowing you down. I actually want to claim that it, it sped you up and that um, uh, you asked a question at the beginning of this uh, uh, podcast um, uh, about uh, writing before you're ready. Um, each one of those ones you explored, you were able to explore in a relatively um, uh, quick way you know, one page or two pages and um, and see what they would look like. Um, imagine, and, and and people do do this, imagine that you had tried to explore them uh, in detail, meaning that you had written two or three chapters about each one of them. We're talking about years of work rather than weeks or, or even months. So So that use of it really did speed you up. You were able to look at a number of different projects uh, from a bird's eye view and decide which one was appropriate and then write efficiently. Um, Mm. I'm not sure that we've seen any other novel uses of that, Um, just the just the idea that it gets someone clear before they move forwards.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, And and it did. It did for me. And part of, and I'll just say this last thing as we're kind of lingering on advisors, that process, I think the comment that my other committee member, who is my methodologist, you know, I think her comment was sort of like, you know, I I had the idea. I mean, I ended up going with the original project that I always envisioned, Um, but I, that experience, um, I still circle back to a lot, and I will talk about that experience with my advisor because That was part of me, and I'd known her for years. We had worked together for years. Um, But still figuring out the advisor role and then my transition from a student to a scholar, where I remember thinking as I left her office, do I, is she, she's saying all these things? Do I have to do, is she saying I have to do this? Like, is she saying, so I was trying to figure out like, what's the, and that was that transition from student to scholar of like, this is my project. This is what I'm writing. This is what I'm going to do. And all of, you know, her suggestions were good. Um, but I could have answered my question with the, you know, the way that I was originally envisioning it, which was two sites that were similar versus a comparative site, you know, scenario, either one would have, would have been, I've been able to answer my question. And so, You know, but that that was a pivotal moment for me in figuring out the advisor role, and 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 of course, every advisor is unique, and so you know our dynamic. And when she says X, Y, and Z, is she saying that because I need to be doing this for her approval of my process, or is she just throwing out ideas? And so, um, you know, so that was instructive. That was an instructive scenario for me as well. And it maybe it might have delayed my my um, proposal like by a a couple months. But so you're, but I, I take your point, William. You're right. If if I If we weren't clear, then once we decided and I hadn't explored all the options on the front end, um, it definitely could have delayed it going forward. Um, And I did a
2: qualitative project, which is time consuming as it is. (laughs) So um, I think we also have to remember that most advisors want to be helpful. And so one of the ways many of them conceptualize being helpful is by throwing out a lot of ideas. (laughs) And Yes, you're quite right. Then you as the uh, advisee have to figure out, well, what exactly do I do with these? And how mm-hmm. many do I have to incorporate? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: And I guess I would give, uh, this is really for the listeners mostly, if, they're in the, if they find themselves in the same situation, um, the, the yardstick I would use for keeping an idea or using or including an idea wouldn't be making an advisor happy. It would be, hmm, does this idea help me do what I want to do? Um, mm-hmm. Is this idea bringing me closer to where I'm going or does it take me further away? And then uh, I think that you have a, a, a defendable answer for including it or not including it.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I, one, and I
2: oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Sonya, the, go ahead. One of the things we talk about in the book is that your defense doesn't just happen at the end of the dissertation in front of your committee. Your defense is happening all the way along.
1: And That's right. So, as yes. William was
2: saying, you may have to defend to your advisor at various points, this is what I want to do. This is why it makes sense. Uh, so this could be one of those instances where you say, this is what I really want to do. Can you help me do that?
1: Exactly.
0: Yes. And, and, and my point that I was going to make speaks to that exactly, which is, and it's, this, I think, can be uncomfortable for students because it is in this process that I truly believe you go from a student to a scholar. Um, and, and by the time you get to the defense, and I remember people saying this to me, Dana, this is a conversation. You are the expert in the room at that point. This is, you've done all the work on this. Um, and so I think that whole dissertation process, as you said, is, is moving from that place of like, are you saying I have to do this as like a student versus as a scholar, I'm making this very informed decision and here's my rationale and here's how I'm going to proceed. Um, and, and that will go a long way, I think with, with advisors. (laughs)
1: And, and actually, that is the process that continues when you're making a revision to your article. Uh, you know, uh, when you get feedback, uh, uh, revise and resubmit, um, people are going to make suggestions there. Again, you don't have to take every suggestion. Those suggestions are to help you make the best piece you can. Um, if they don't make sense to you or if there's some reason for not using those suggestions, you simply write in the letter. For the revise and resubmit, when you resubmit it, um, the reason you're not including something. Mm.
0: Yes, yes, and um, and I would say for the the process of review for when you're doing same thing, articles or books, it's the same thing,
1: exactly. Because um,
0: ultimately, at the end of the day, it's your name on it and it's your work. Um, I, I do want to um, I do want to uh, talk about uh, the distinctions that you outline. Um, of writing versus editing, because I think that's going to, that's very instructive for a lot of people. So could you describe what fast writing is and how it differs from editing? Sure.
2: Fast writing is essentially writing, can we say this, a shitty first draft? Uh, Yes. Where you just write as fast as you can. Uh, Don't take time to do any revising. When you see the little red line come up on your screen that you've done a typo, you ignore that, you just keep going. And and the reason is when you revise, some of that's going to get cut, as William was talking about earlier. And so don't spend any time polishing it. You don't know yet if it's even going to be in there. So if you can fast write a whole section, then you can see, well, what do I have here? And is this going the direction I want it to go? Instead of uh, fiddling around and trying to make every word perfect.
1: That's right. Um, um, If we can say shitty first draft, that actually comes from Anne Lamont,
2: Lamont, uh, Bird
1: by Bird. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But um, the the analogy that I usually use is uh, moving furniture into a room. If if you were to take an end table and try to place it in the room uh, all by itself, try to make a decision of where the best place for it were, um, that would be very hard. But once you put all of the things that are going into the room in the room, then you can move those things around and find the best place for all of them. So you need the basic pieces to make the decision. You, you need the couch in place and the chair in place to really make the decision. Where is the end table going? And so fast writing is collecting the pieces that you're going to use to put into place.
2: So often I tell students, like they're, if they're agonizing over a word, like, is this the right word? And 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 I haven't done a shitty first draft. I tell them the reason you're having trouble right now is because you have no criteria to use for making that decision because you haven't seen the whole. So how do you know what word is going to be the appropriate word in that spot? So what William was talking about when moving furniture around is you're essentially figuring out what the criteria are going to be for you to make those judgments. Hmm.
0: So how does how does fast writing? um, differ from editing or, or maybe if this helps you like talking about editing versus proofreading. I, those are really very
1: different. Yeah. I I would make a large difference between editing and proofreading, but let Mm -hmm. me try to answer the first thing, the difference between fast writing and editing. Um, uh, I'll, I'll return to what I said a minute ago. I think of fast writing as collecting the pieces that you're going to use and then editing as, uh, uh, discarding and or, discarding anything you don't need, organizing the things that you're going to keep and putting in anything new to make them fit together. So fast writing would be collecting the pieces. Editing would be ordering the pieces and then proofreading would be really some kind of polishing act.
2: And, and we recommend serial editing where you don't edit for everything all at once. You go through the section of the chapter many many times each time focusing on one thing so for example the first time through you might say well what should be cut here or the second time through might be well what do I need to add here what am I missing uh, and then you, you keep going down to smaller and smaller uh, issues like okay what's the best way to organize this am I overriding am I underwriting uh, so each time through you're focusing on something different mm-hmm. So
0: traditionally, the last chapter is the hardest to write because by the time you reach that point, you're done with writing. You feel like you've said all there is to say about your topic. Um, But you all cite um, in the book that it's also the most important because it includes your interpretation of findings. Why is this section so important? And what do you suggest for moving past like writing fatigue at this stage for students?
1: I, I might disagree here, Dana. I, I would say that the last chapter is the easiest to write. Um, that that there's really no new information. Uh, there's nothing that needs to be learned. Everything's been discovered by um, by putting the pieces together, and now this is really a reporting of those pieces. Um, so that's just a um, maybe a different take on that. But I, I would say that the way that you get around. Uh, writer's fatigue here is is seeing the finish line. Look at that. Um, look at that. I just have to do, you know, 15 to 20 pages and uh, and this wonderful project is complete.
2: But it's also true in that last chapter that you want to move from the specifics of your analysis into something more general, more abstract, something larger. Uh, and often that's a theory uh, or some theoretical propositions or hypotheses so there is a, a an extra step there and, and this relates to what we were talking about earlier with going from the student to the scholar um, you, you do want to make that move that makes those specific findings more applicable to other people mm.
0: well and I, and I wanted I wanted to talk about that as in, um as we're kind of closing down the conversation, you don't mention imposter syndrome specifically, but I think that idea of, of, um, feeling inadequate, um, has sprinkled throughout as we were talking about kind of moving into that scholar role. And one of the places you talk about that is in, is at the end when you're talking about the interpretation of findings and, and developing a theory. Um, and a lot of students may feel intimidated at that thought. Um, so would you break down what a theory is and what it means to offer
2: theoretical propositions? Essentially, a theory is taking your specific findings, going up a level or two of an abstraction to phrase your findings using terms that other people can use apart from your data. So there's something that could be used in other contexts and other situations. And it's not that complicated. I mean, people talk about theories have um, variables and axioms. So there are things you're talking about and there's relationships between them. That's all it is. And, and we theorize all the time. Uh, if, if you keep contacting a friend and she never calls you back, well, you theorize, Hmm. maybe she's not my friend anymore. Uh, you brought some data, you've made a theory. Uh, so it's just taking the slightly more abstract step to present your findings in a way that could be useful to people who aren't at all interested in the particular topic that you studied. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. It's been great talking with you today,
0: but before we wrap up, um, could you both tell us um, what you're working on now or
2: a project that you're excited
0: to share about? Um,
2: Sure. I guess I can start. Um, I just finished actually a book uh, called Feminism in Practice, Communication Strategies for Making Change. Uh, And it's about 20 contemporary feminists from all sorts of walks of life and occupations uh, and how they are using feminist strategies to change their world. Um, I'm also working on a piece on social presence uh, with a co-author and social presence for us is simply when you communicate these days, you know people are most likely to be on some kind of technology. And so how is it that you intervene into that conversation they're already having uh, to get your social presence in there so that you can have an interaction with them?
1: Um, uh, before I answer that, I, I'd like to make a, you've been talking about the first uh, first edition of the book. I'd like to make a small plug for the second edition of the book. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I'd like to highlight, I think that um, uh, the second edition of the book does a really, really good job of explaining the research problem mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a way that our first edition didn't quite get. Um, and so I, I'd just like to mention that. I, I uh,
0: would, I would agree. I just wanted to say too, I, I did get a copy of the second edition and that's what I've read. And that, uh, that edition, I remember reading it thinking, hmm, was that in the first? Cause it was very good. The way that you all break down what that, what that looks like and how to do that well. Um, so I, I will, I will add to your plug that the second edition <laughs> offers that and is, Great. and is yeah. very helpful.
1: Yeah, it, it wasn't in the first edition, <laughs> it, it was, um, uh, and, and uh, I think that's actually Sonia's section. She did really well on that. Um, um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're always welcome. Uh, I'm working on, uh, uh, John Lennon has a song um, uh, in which he uses what I'm calling a transparent rhyme. Uh, the, the chorus is, um, uh, Christ, you know how hard it can be. Uh, the way things are going, they're going to crucify me. And so I'm writing a piece about how uh, the, the use of Christ and crucify there. Is both addressing uh, um, Jesus um, and making John Lennon like Jesus, but also addressing people and, and using um, uh, the Christ as a uh, as a kind of swear word, um, and that's called uh, transparent rhyme. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: William, aren't you always writing poetry
1: too? Oh yes, and of course yes, and and uh, I, I'm always writing and sending out poetry, uh, poems. Yes.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, Sonia and William, thank you for being on the show today and talking with us about your book, Destination Dissertation A Traveler's Guide to a Done Dissertation.
2: It was great fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you both.
0: I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.